1959, the Walt Disney Company released a film called Darby O'Gill and the Little People, a movie best remembered for starring a pre-James Bond, Sean Connery, in his first American-made film. On the movie's original run, it came packaged with an educational animated short in which Donald Duck was guided through a history of mathematics, with the spirit of adventure informing his journey along the way. Within two years, Donald in Mathmagicland began airing as part of Disney's weekly television program, and soon after, it became available to schools as a film strip, and by the early 80s, as a VHS cassette. By coding the lessons in a healthy dollop of Disneyana, Donald in Mathmagicland became the company's most popular educational film ever. And there's a good chance you saw it in school. Millions did. During the early days of Disney's cable channel, a good portion of the day's schedule was devoted to material pulled from the studio's archives. Among half-forgotten Chip and Dale shorts, and sequences originally intended for the Disneyland anthology, there was Donald in Mathmagicland. Without any sort of context, Mathmagicland was a tonal shift among the other cartoons. There were fewer sight gags. The style was something a little more of its era, keeping in taste with the atomic age. And there were filing cabinets. Donald is guided to what looks like a dilapidated file room and is told that this is a representation of his mind. Cobwebs, dust, and loose clutter collect in neglected corners with cabinets overflowing with folders. This image stuck with me and even today, it's how I visualize memory storage. I like to imagine that if we were to pull a folder We'd see a listing of cross-references and threads to follow. That's what today's about. We've pulled three files from the memory cabinets to share with you. Welcome to Curated Content. Act 1 We live in the future. This isn't some kind of vague philosophical statement and it's not some kind of sales pitch. It's a fact. Think about it. By the time you hear this podcast, I will have already moved on to another project. It may be days, weeks, months, years between the moment I speak these words and the moment they reach your ears. The future. And this brings me to space aliens. As I record this, I am living in a world in which Earth is the only planet on which there is definitive proof of life. This might not be for long, though, as you may already know. Again, the future. One thing I definitely know is that the smartest man in the world says that we should be terrified of the possibility of contact with extraterrestrials. Stephen Hawking, the man who held the same academic position as Sir Isaac Newton, outright told us that any contact would be something like Columbus's first encounters with the Arawak tribe in the Caribbean. Humans would not be playing the part of Columbus in this analogy. 
fear of visitors from another world isn't necessarily a new thing. Think about medieval legends of demons, of otherworldly monsters intruding on human lives, and you get a sense of how long this particular paranoia has been with us. Of course, those of us of a certain age have a very specific harbinger of doom to thank for our fear of visitors. Robert Stack, host of the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries. Stack wasn't the show's original host, but he was its most iconic. Viewers my parents' age would remember him as the crime buster Elliot Ness on The Untouchables, while anybody just a little older might remember him from the classic comedy Airplane. Unsolved Mysteries, with its willingness to veer into the world of the paranormal, and its canted angle, smoke and lights, reenactments of alien abductions, and menacing craft in the sky, terrified me as a kid. The show was given to retellings of stories that had an air of the paranormal, with stories of haunted houses and Sasquatch rummaging through campsites. But one category was more upsetting to me than any other. The mid-80s seemed to percolate with a particular anxiety of extraterrestrial origin. I can remember browsing the rack of paperback novels at a local grocery store and being so startled by the almond-eyed gray alien on the cover of Whitley Strieber's book Communion that I couldn't even look in its general direction without getting chills. Unsolved Mysteries tapped into this, retelling stories like that of the Travis Walton abduction and the Betty and Barney Hill incident. The show managed to amplify those fears by including reenactments, each given gravitas by Stack's steady narration. There's a feeling of helplessness wrapped up in all of this. If the stories about Bigfoot scared me, I could calm myself by remembering that as long as I stayed out of his domain, he wasn't a threat. Similarly, I was pretty sure that my house wasn't haunted, and to the best of my knowledge, none of the places where I was likely to spend the night were either. How do you ward off beings capable of interstellar travel? How do you protect yourself from spacemen? It's difficult to find clips of the show online these days. Its producers have been vigilant about protecting their copyright, and it's not presently streaming on any services in the United States. But its most terrifying segments still lurk in the corners of memory. When I do stumble across these reenactments, I'm struck by how low the production values are. Adult me can laugh at these things, but my child counterpart processed things through a much different lens. Parts that still disturb me decades later are the witness testimonials and the rough sketches of what people claimed their abductors looked like. Something about their conviction and assuredness still startles me. Whatever happened to these people had made an indelible mark on who they are, and this was how they processed it. Whether or not they had really been victims of alien abduction, the fear that they felt was real, and it was enough to keep me up at night. In 1986, I wanted to be an astronaut. By 1988, I was terrified, too terrified to look up at the night sky. 
30 years after Unsolved Mysteries premiered, the world feels scarier to me. The looming threat of physical or mental harm isn't coming from outside of this world's atmosphere any more than a disc is going to land on the South Lawn and offer an ultimatum in the name of nuclear disarmament. So I've started to look up again, into the night sky, less afraid of anything that's up there than I have been in decades. The stars, sparkling in the firmament, are beautiful. Act 2 Think about genius for a moment. Who do you picture? Do you think of Michelangelo, flat on his back as he paints the Sistine Chapel's ceiling? What about Einstein, in front of a chalkboard, scribbling down the secrets of the universe? You probably don't picture Picasso painting Elvis on velvet in order to make his mortgage payment. That's where our story begins. First, though, some context. In the days before media consolidation turned every channel on television into every other channel on television, the upper range of the spectrum was something wilder than what you'd find at the more polite stations with network affiliations. The term was ultra-high frequency, and the moment you crossed the magic line that existed around channel 13, the change became noticeable. Reruns of half-forgotten westerns and the Brady Bunch sat in their schedules, buffered by locally produced commercials shot on VHS camcorders and earnestly acted. And then, in time slots in the middle of the day that could charitably be called no man's land, there were the movies. Hauled up from the dredges of memory, UHF stations aired movies meant for nobody and seen by fewer. Imagine the worst movie by your favorite actor, and you'd be on the right track, though there were some selections that were stranger still. Now then, let's talk about what this has to do with fading genius. Let's talk about Orson Welles. There have been many more thoughtful, more thorough things written and said about Welles, and I don't want to even pretend like I'm going to illuminate you on this subject. What you need to know is this. By the 1970s, the former wonder boy of American cinema had seen his star lose a fair bit of shine. And when an opportunity to trade a bit of gravitas for a paycheck came along, Wells signed on the dotted line. He found himself as a pitchman for wines and frozen vegetables, and providing narration to films like Future Shock, a documentary in very loose terms indeed. Though this era wasn't completely without merit, quality material like the Wells-narrated F is for Fake would be the exception, rather than the rule. At the decade's end, Wells agreed to act as narrator and, in effect, host of a two-hour film about Nostradamus, and Hitler, and the Kennedys, and nuclear war. 
titled The Man Who Saw Tomorrow. The film was a grab bag of stock footage and cheesy reenactments of events. There are also interviews, though the speakers are no more credible than Jean Dixon, the woman who would go on to infamy as Nancy Reagan's psychic of choice. Imagine being a kid, stuck at your grandparents' house on a weekday afternoon during summer vacation, or homesick and bored out of your skull. Whether lost in the haze of summer doldrums or the fog of cold and flu medication, there was something arresting and authoritative about the sound of Wells' narration. We're going to look at this man, this uh, Michel de Nostradamus. He was a respected French physician whose predictions of the future have mystified scholars for over 400 years. We're going to look at his predictions of the French Revolution, of the Kennedys, of Napoleon, of Hitler, and of another man who, Nostradamus says, is soon to plunge the world into a catastrophic war. Was he a quack, this Nostradamus, a charlatan, or was he a true prophet, a man with a gift to see what others cannot see? We're going to let you judge for yourselves. If his predictions of the past are accurate, then his predictions of the future could very well affect the lives of all of us. I saw this film at a really young age, and it shook me to my core. I didn't understand who Wells had been, let alone the concept of taking dubious work for cold, hard cash. I didn't know about how Jodorowsky had tried to lure Wells, a man given to voracious appetites, into a film adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune with the promise of hiring his favorite restaurant to cater Wells every meal. What I knew was this, a man with a learned manner and a rich oratory style was speaking to me about predictions of the end of the world which he assured would come sooner rather than later. And that message came in a voice that sounded more trustworthy than, say, the televangelists bellowing about end times elsewhere on the dial. Wells and John Hagee were both heavy-set middle-aged men intoning about doomsday. The difference was, Wells sounded credible. I only made it to the end of The Man Who Saw the Future once that I can recall. The final minutes are a grand cop-out in which Wells lets us know that Nostradamus's fatalistic visions can be avoided and that man can work toward a more peaceful world, free of the threat of nuclear annihilation. After a good two hours of genocide and poorly reenacted historical mayhem, we're treated to images of blue skies and rolling green fields. It was probably meant to be a comfort, but even as a kid, I felt like it was more of an insult than anything. We were rubes. We were marks. We had been hustled by a century's dead quack and a past-his-prime Hollywood genius who was living in an admirer's guest room and would soon be a pitchman for wine in a screw-top bottle. The sort of television stations that once aired The Man Who Saw the Future are, for the most part, a memory as dim as the film itself. 
VHS copies still circulate secondhand, and a legally dubious copy can be found streaming online, which may be for the best. After all, there are countless real-world horrors running at any given time across our television sets, ready and willing to terrify kids confined to a sofa on a sick day. For those of us of a certain age, though, there's something comforting about hearing such dopey words from such a commanding voice while watching stock footage jumbled against day players dressed as French soldiers. Could Nostradamus really see the future? If he could, I wonder if any of those messages, coded in quatrains, were meant for Wells himself. I wonder if he could predict the rise of a boy genius in radio and film, a man whose nimble mind could conjure up visions of his own, visions powerful enough to spark a moment of hysteria among a people terrified of alien invaders in one radio broadcast. Is there some cryptic line in those writings that predicted a long, slow decline, beginning with a battle with a newspaper magnet, and sliding into a twilight that saw his star twinkling out in stunt casting and voiceovers on Magnum P.I. In rewatching The Man Who Saw the Future, I can't say I believe Nostradamus saw the future any more than you or I could. I think Wells saw his own fate, though, as if it was written in the stars. Act 3. Think about the 70s and early 80s for a moment. Think about lying on the carpet in your parents' family room, the medium pile, chocolate brown shag beneath you, and a little radio, branded realistic and sporting an outrageously long antenna, sitting beside you, the tinny sound of soft rock filling the air around you. What band is playing? That's right. It's Fleetwood Mac. I want you to picture Fleetwood Mac for a moment. There are a couple of nondescript members. You know that somebody's playing the bass, and with all respect to Christine McVie, you probably just think of her as keyboard mom. From there, you might recognize Lindsey Buckingham, the guitarist. And there's a chance that you recognize Mick Fleetwood as the tall guy with the balls on the cover of Rumors. Be honest, though. You think of Stevie Nicks. This story is not about Stevie Nicks. It might be helpful to think of bands from this era the way that I think of the minor league baseball teams of my youth. There would be a couple of players who might be anchors, but there would be plenty of turnover in the lifespan of the lineup. Buying a Fleetwood Mac album, or a Steely Dan single, or an Eagles t-shirt was a lot like wearing an Oklahoma City 89ers hat or buying a Tulsa Drillers pennant. Other than the occasional presence of a future star in the ranks, you couldn't actually name the lineup of the Oklahoma City 89ers. They were just some dudes you went to see play baseball. Other than Sexy Witch Stevie, 
you couldn't actually name most of Fleetwood Mac. They were just some dudes who made music your mom probably hummed along with in the grocery store. The thing is, Fleetwood Mac didn't magically come into being with the first notes of Rhiannon. The truth was that three-fifths of the band had been trudging along for almost a decade, peddling a blues rock sound that failed to make much of an impression on American listeners. There had been rotations of guitar players that yielded a litany of rock band personnel issues. One player became a drug casualty. One left after alcoholism drove a wedge between him and the band. One guitarist left to join a cult. The usual. So how did they get from a journeyman British blues rock crew to royalty of the SoCal sound? In 1971, Fleetwood Mac's lineup included namesakes Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, McVie's wife, the former Christine Perfect, and guitarists Danny Kerwan and Jeremy Spencer. While on tour in Los Angeles, Spencer said that he was going to get a magazine and left the hotel. Spencer disappeared, only to reemerge with his head shaved and name changed, newly recruited into a cult called the Children of God, which advocated free love and in recent years has changed its name, and it has attempted to distance itself from a past which included exploiting women and a record of child abuse. The band tried reaching out to Peter Green, their founding guitarist who'd left in his own haze of drugs and spirituality, but eventually settled on an American named Bob Welch, whom they hired without having heard any of his music. Something clicked, though, and Welch became a constant over the next few LPs. Pretty soon, he would become the band's sole guitarist. Now, let me make a note about an instrument here. One of the constants during Fleetwood Mac's early to mid-years is the presence of the Gibson Les Paul electric guitar. Photos can be found of virtually every Fleetwood Mac guitarist playing one at some point, from Peter Green up through Lindsey Buckingham. A Gibson Les Paul is a solid-body guitar, and for as relatively compact as its body may be, it's a heavy instrument, capable of taking a lot of abuse. So then, Danny Kerwan must have been fueled by very powerful anger the night that he smashed a Les Paul, voiced his anger with the band, and refused to take the stage at a gig. He had been slipping into alcoholism, and this outburst would be the last straw for Mick Fleetwood, who fired Kerwan on the spot. Bob Welch recorded five LPs with Fleetwood Mac and eventually led them to their highest charting album to date, with Heroes Are Hard to Find, his final effort with them. It was during this era that the band relocated to Los Angeles, largely at Welch's suggestion. Welch departed the band not long after recording Heroes Are Hard to Find, leaving behind a band very different from the one he joined. Fleetwood Mac was now less invested in the blues than they had been when he joined, and the albums he played on included hints of the direction they would go in after his departure. There's a pretty good argument that without Bob Welch, Fleetwood Mac doesn't make it to rumors. It's also worth noting that beyond a rift with Fleetwood sometime around 
the time in which the band was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he stayed on pretty good terms with several members of the band. Lindsey Buckingham and Christine McVie were involved in the production of his album French Kiss, which yielded the mellow rock classic Sentimental Lady, a reworking of a song he had originally recorded with the Mac. It'd be pretty easy to write off the next act of Bob Welch's career as just another classic rock guitarist, brushed aside by changing tastes and the ageism that runs rampant in pop music. He continued to record, battled substance abuse issues, and briefly served as a patron to the band that would become Guns N' Roses, letting them practice in his garage. When Fleetwood Mac was inducted into the Hall of Fame in the late 90s, Welch wasn't included among the honorees. He was becoming, in his own words, an invisible man. There's a curious thing about invisible men in the age of Google. They have a tendency to become visible. Let's fast forward to 2012 or so. We're living in a world in which virtually any knowledge we could hope to attain can be found at our fingertips. We could learn physics or explore art throughout human history, or in my case, waste hours musing about one hit wonders that had largely been forgotten by most of our friends. Bob Welch's sentimental lady came up in one of these conversations, and I found myself wondering just what he'd been up to in the years since. A quick search on Google returned his homepage, apparently built using Microsoft front page and almost certainly self-run. The site revealed a man who seemed, despite a note about being slighted at the Hall of Fame, to be at peace with his past. There were links to order autographs and a couple of iTunes links, mostly in bright colors against a black background. It all seemed pretty tame, really and I contemplated sending him an email offering to build him a more modern-looking website. I set that thought aside as I scrolled further down the page and discovered Welch's other passion. His belief that the government is covering up evidence of extraterrestrial visitors. Now, his advocacy didn't seem to reach the most fevered levels which I'd seen elsewhere, but it was pretty clear that this was a major interest for Bob Welch, and had been for some time. In revisiting his time with Fleetwood Mac, the song Hypnotized is one that stands out as evidence of this. First, the sound itself stands out. It's rightly hailed as one of the great Fleetwood Mac songs, and it earned a spot in post-Welch live performances. The lyrics, though, talk of mysterious objects in the sky, and a story of a potential landing site in North Carolina, which he would also bring up in later interviews. It's not quite calling occupants of interplanetary craft levels of obviousness, but still, the message is pretty clear. Bob Welch passed away in 2012. He took his own life after a back surgery, and that's truly sad. There's more than enough evidence to argue that he should have been included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if only because he managed to keep Fleetwood Mac moving during a time when the band could have easily called it a day. When I think about his passing, I can't help but think about radio waves echoing out from the earth and into the heavens, and how somewhere in the back half of the solar system, a receiver could probably pick up a wavelength playing one of Bob Welch's songs. 
Maybe Sentimental Lady is going to be a hit on Alpha Centauri millennia from now. Curated content is recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of a golden driller. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you're listening to now. He also performed our interstitial music. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at Content Show, or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether you just want to let us know what you think, or if you're curious about sponsorship opportunities. Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and unexpected threads running through my brain's encoding. This concludes our visit to the Mixed Up Files deep in the memory banks. Be well and stay curious.